welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series 13 and episode 6. And this is the first of two episodes where we're going to study the death of Jesus by crucifixion. And we're going to use Luke's account as the main uh, basis for telling the story. We're going to be in Luke chapter 23, verses 26 to 43. Well, I hope you've been following the episodes through and uh, you've got a feel for the story that's uh, been unfolding before us for quite some time now, from series 11 through series 12 and now uh, into series 13. And it's amazing to think that all that material is just about a few days in Jesus's life. It's amazing to think that the material has only covered uh, a five-day period in which a huge amount of, of action has taken place and a huge number of significant things have happened. And uh, the story is very remarkable the way that it's unfolded. It seems incredible that we've gone from a position only five days earlier than this on Friday. Uh, the previous Sunday is a time when Jesus was rapturously welcomed into Jerusalem by a huge crowd. It seems impossible to think that from that moment to now he is facing crucifixion, having been convicted as a blasphemer by the Jewish Sanhedrin and having been sentenced to execution by the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, which we saw in the last episode. It's an incredible transformation that's taken place. And the reason for this is that within Jerusalem, of course, the religious establishment is the one place where opposition to Jesus was absolutely steadfast. And they were determined during this time to find a way of uh, arresting him, trying him and getting him executed. And they have been successful in that task. Despite the events of uh, Palm Sunday when Jesus came in triumph and his overturning of the tables of the market traders in the temple and his ability to withstand their hostile questioning, uh, despite all those things, they found a way of arresting him in a discreet way. And the way they did that was by using the betrayer, Judas Iscariot, who uh, halfway through the week, on the Wednesday, decided that he was going to change sides and go over to the authorities uh, in order to gain a financial reward. And he was disillusioned with Jesus in a number of different ways. So Judas uh, provided the opportunity for the authorities to move very quickly. And they moved with breakneck speed. Because late on Thursday night, after the Last Supper, when Jesus had gone to the Garden of Gethsemane, a quiet garden just outside the walls of, Jer of Jerusalem in the Kidron Valley, to the east of the city, they, uh, they went to that garden very late at night, perhaps somewhere around midnight, and arrested Jesus. And within just a few hours, they've tried him in a, in a nighttime trial in the high priest's house where the Sanhedrin gathered during the night, and they brought him to Pilate at the earliest possible moment on the Friday morning. Very early in the morning, they come down to the Roman governor and they are asking him to carry out a sentence of execution, which they weren't allowed to do by law. The Romans prevented them having that authority. So they were dependent on the Romans for, uh, for, for their collaboration. 
we saw when Jesus was in front of Pilate that Pilate was deeply reluctant. He didn't feel convinced about this action at all. He didn't see Jesus as a threat to the Romans in any way whatsoever. He saw this as a religious quarrel amongst the Jews. He'd seen plenty of those before. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. But the sheer pressure of the crowd that the authorities managed to assemble outside uh, the governor's uh, palace and um, place of adjudication, of justice, the, the sheer pressure of this crowd chanting, crucify him, crucify him, and asking uh, Pilate to hand over to them one other criminal, Barabbas, uh, and to have Jesus crucified. The sheer pressure of that eventually overwhelmed him. And he made that fateful decision that he would uh, hand uh, Jesus over for execution to his soldiers. That's the point we've reached in the story as we come now to read the account in Luke 23. But before we read the account, let's just have a, have a think for a moment about what was happening in the city on this occasion. Now, it was very early in the morning. People were still getting up. The city wasn't busy yet. But Jerusalem on this Friday was going to be a very, very busy city because this was the central day of the Passover feast, the Friday of this particular week, a very big religious festival. Huge crowds were expected in the city and in the temple compound. And so it's important from the authorities' point of view to get moving, the religious authorities' point of view, to get moving quickly uh, to get Jesus crucified before the crowds build up. Because crowds could be very volatile. And the Romans also knew that crowds could be volatile. And if, if rumours went round about Jesus being uh, persecuted by the Sanhedrin, there could be a popular crowd movement in the favour of Jesus. So the Sanhedrin wanted Pilate to move quickly. They went as early as they could to see him and they wanted him to make a decision really early, which he did after much pressure. Now, the method of crucifixion is another thing just to comment on. Crucifixion was the chosen form of execution uh, for the Romans. They used it as a means of imposing their authority and intimidating their opponents and dissuading people from rebelling against them. Wooden crosses were set up in public places and on the side of the road. Those to be crucified were stripped naked and beaten before they were nailed or tied to the cross and um, hung up on the side of the roads or in public places in such a way that um, the body would bleed and be stretched in a way that meant, meant breathing was very, very hard. It was a slow, painful and torturous way of dying that could take many, many hours. It could take more than a day to die. It was an utterly humiliating way to end your life. Tremendously painful and designed to intimidate any opponents of the Roman Empire. 
This was the way of death that would be chosen for Jesus. And Jesus knew in advance that his death was going to come by crucifixion. He would have seen uh, crucified people and bodies on, tr on crosses uh, in the country himself. He'd have seen this with his own eyes. Now, the timing of the crucifixion, according to Mark 15, verse 25, was that it started at nine o'clock in the morning and Jesus died at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. John 19, verse 14, gives uh, a timing that looks different, but it's probably based on the Roman calculation of time. Um, so we can follow um, the lead given by Mark and which is the framework that Luke is working in. Something is happening very early in the morning. Let's read the text, Luke 23, verses 26 to 43. As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him, Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. According to John 19 verse 17, Jesus started out carrying his own cross. But as we see here at the beginning of Luke's account in verse 26, fairly soon, as someone else was called in to help him carry the cross from the Roman fortress uh, in the city 
uh, to the site of crucifixion outside the city walls. And that man was named Simon, who came from Cyrene, which is in North Africa. He was just a passerby. His two sons are named in Mark's gospel, which suggests that he might have become a believer or they might have become believers and known to the early church as a result of this incident. And so Simon has to carry the wooden cross because Jesus is struggling, probably because of the intense flogging that he has received. A large crowd gathers and Luke notes a large number of women who were particularly distressed to see Jesus in this shocking state, having been flogged and humiliated and struggling uh, to carry his cross and struggling along the road towards the site of crucifixion. And Jesus remarkably speaks to them and says something very surprising, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves, and speaks prophetically to these women that they and others who follow them, other women who follow them, will suffer greatly in Israel because of the impact of the decision that's been made by the Sanhedrin and the rulers that they're rejecting the Messiahship of Jesus. He predicts again some judgment is going to come upon, upon, the, country, upon the country. This has been a consistent theme. We've seen it at the end of Matthew 23. We see it in Jesus's predictions about the future as recorded um, in Luke 21 verses 20 to 24 which speaks explicitly about Jerusalem being destroyed by a Gentile army which turns out to be the Romans who did so around the year 70 AD. So Jesus is pointing to them that, that, that the issue is not primarily about his suffering but about their suffering as a nation. He knows that his suffering, terrible though it is, will be short-lived and redemptive. The crucifixion site is known as the place of the skull, Golgotha, an Aramaic term used in the Greek language. Sometimes Christians use the term Calvary. The Latin word for skull is Calvaria from which we get the English word Calvary to describe the place of crucifixion just outside the city gates. Why was it called the place of the skull? Maybe simply because it was a place of execution where skulls were to be found. Maybe because the site looked like a skull, a little hill that looked in the shape of a human skull. This idea has fascinated people over the years and there is outside Jerusalem, just outside the modern walls of the old city of Jerusalem, a little mound which has a, a similarity to the shape of a skull in the rock formation in this mound or little hill. And some people have interpreted this as a possible place for uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. We can't be sure about that. But the place was named Golgotha. There are two criminals being executed. Perhaps they were colleagues of Barabbas who had been 
a criminal leading some kind of a rebellion who was freed uh, by Pontius Pilate because of the tradition that one prisoner should be freed at the festival time. Maybe they were conspirators with him. But these are being executed on his left and his right, and he will have significant conversations with them. As Jesus is on the cross, as described here in Luke, in a three-hour period, because Luke 26, verse 44, describes something different happening at noonday, 12 o'clock, and if, it, if we're starting at 9 a.m. Uh, to 12 a.m., then these verses describe the first three hours. There are three statements made during this three-hour period that are recorded. Three statements that Jesus makes from the cross. The first one appears in verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This is an incredible state statement of compassion and identification with sinners and people who were bringing about the execution of Jesus. Jesus is looking at the people that he sees from the cross. He sees Roman soldiers. He sees ordinary citizens. He sees Jewish religious leaders. And he asks God to have mercy on them. Little do they know what a terrible thing that they have done, the Jews and the Romans alike. But not only is Jesus suffering with the pain of crucifixion, he's also being mocked by the crowd. Verses 35 and 36, by people, ordinary people, by the rulers, the Jewish rulers, by the Roman soldiers. There's an in intensity of mocking that goes on, which frequently happens at crucifixion. One of the humiliations of crucifixion was being utterly powerless as you were being mocked by people standing on the side of the road. Matthew 27 verse 39 and 40 gives some detail to this. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the son of God. Well, this idea that Jesus said that was, of course, put in their minds by the Sanhedrin because it had been used as an accusation against Jesus in the trial in the high priest's house that we looked at in an earlier episode. So it looks like the rulers are going round um, telling people what to say and they're just hurling these insults at Jesus. And of course there's a sign on the cross. Mostly the Romans gave uh, some sign to indicate the reason for crucifixion for all passers-by. John gives us the full, fullest account of the significance of this sign in John 19 verses 19 to 22. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. 
So the claim the king of the Jews is, of course, a messianic claim. That's the significance of it. And it would be understood by uh, the Jews to be a claim to be the Messiah and, and would show Jesus to be a false Messiah. Pilate wrote the sign in the three common languages of the country. Aramaic, the language that Jews spoke on the street. Greek, the language of the Eastern Mediterranean, which was widely spoken in Israel as well. And Latin, which was the Roman language, the language of the bureaucracy and the military and uh, official political and legal documents. So it was quite clear to everyone what the accusation was. Now, the two criminals talked to Jesus. One is angry and hostile. They both knew about Jesus. Quite clearly, they had some background knowledge. That's not surprising because everybody in Jerusalem at this point knew about Jesus. His triumphal entry the previous Sunday was known by everybody. It was a dramatic public event, the biggest event that went on the whole week. And the reputation of Jesus as a miracle worker and a healer and a prophet and perhaps even as a messiah was spreading really fast. People knew about Jesus. But one of the criminals cursed Jesus, complaining that if he had all this power, why didn't he get them all down off the cross? Why didn't he miraculously end this terrible suffering and release them? But the other criminal on the cross showed humility repentance and elements of a sincere faith in the statement that he made. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. So he accepted that he had done things wrong. He was being punished justly. He also believed Jesus to be innocent. And he also said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he sincerely believed that Jesus was the Messiah who did um, have the authority of the kingdom of God, who had begun to bring it in and who would bring it in in fullness in due course. I've mentioned this many times in our studies, this Jewish understanding of the messianic kingdom, God coming and dwelling on earth, ruling the Jewish people through his Messiah and for his rule to spread out to the Gentile nations around. This was a characteristically Jewish idea that Jesus appeared to encourage and to affirm with some of his teaching. And he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this brings about the second remarkable statement of Jesus from the cross. Truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. This man experienced salvation at this moment in his life, the very last moment of his human life. And when he was being executed as a criminal, he repented, he had faith. As far as he was able to, he showed a wholehearted belief in Jesus. And remarkably, Jesus said, that he was going to enter into salvation. He was going to enter into paradise, which is another word for the heavenly existence that Jesus 
was going to experience very shortly after death. Then comes the remarkable third statement of Jesus on the cross in these first three hours. This is recorded by John, John 19, verses 25 to 27. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Now, the disciple whom Jesus loved, we've identified in earlier episodes as John himself, the author of John's Gospel. And I've given some reasons for that in earlier episodes. He was one of the inner circle. Peter, James and John had a close affinity and friendship with Jesus. But here he has been given the responsibility of Mary to look after her. Jesus was the eldest son. His stepfather, Joseph, had almost certainly died because there's no reference to him in the Gospels beyond the uh, narratives of the nativity in the early years of Jesus, his childhood. So Jesus had overall responsibility for Mary's welfare in the traditions of Jewish society. He had no certainty as to what his brothers were going to do for her, given the turbulence of his death and the fact that he wouldn't be there among them any longer. And he gives to John the responsibility of looking after Mary, who was a disciple of his and who went with him at certain times and was with him on this last trip to Jerusalem and would be present uh, at the day of Pentecost. So John took the responsibility of looking after Mary and church tradition tells us that John fulfilled that role for many years. So as we conclude this episode, we just remind ourselves that we're describing the first three hours of the six hours that Jesus spent on the cross. The focus of these three hours is the judgment of humanity, of people, of institutions, of authorities against Jesus. The Sanhedrin and the Roman governor have come together in a single decision, despite the reluctance of the governor, to bring about execution. Jesus is suffering at the hands of humanity and the authorities in the city of Jerusalem. He's suffering the wrath of man. We see here spiritual blindness on every side. Pilate, ignorant of Judaism, had no idea what was going on. The Jewish leaders refusing the obvious evidence of Jesus' messiahship in his fulfillment of scriptures and his miraculous powers. The crowds far too easily influenced by the Jewish leaders, who've, some of whom have changed their minds from what they thought even a few days earlier. And the soldiers just doing their job without ever thinking seriously about the significance of somebody like Jesus. Spiritual blindness was everywhere. 
and a national tragedy for the Jewish nation was unfolding. The significance of this terrible moment would reverberate in the Jewish nation for a long time to come and would lead to an act of judgment against them within a generation of Jesus' death. But my final comment is to go back again to Jesus and to point out and underline the extraordinarily, extraordinary love and grace to those around him that he demonstrated in this three-hour period where all his statements are focused on the needs of other people. First of all, the needs of the perpetrators for forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they, do, what they are doing. His second statement focuses on the urgent need of the thief, the criminal on the cross, who pleads for Jesus' help. And Jesus speaks to him and grants him salvation. He meets that need. And the third statement is concerning the human and practical needs of his own mother. And he makes direct provision for that by commissioning John, his friend and his disciple, to look after his mother in the years to come when Jesus will no longer be on the earth. This is a truly moving and remarkable story. But in part two, we'll see some other key dimensions of the significance of the death of Jesus coming into play. And we'll get an even fuller picture of what Jesus' death really means. And I hope you'll join us for that episode. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.